Open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26, we are hastening toward the end of the book. We are pausing for one last sermon on a single verse. This verse is, I believe, the literary theological climax of the book of Acts. That moment where everything that the narrative has been telling comes to a head. In Paul's declaration, verses 22 and 23, Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both the small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Let's pray. Father, this is Paul's summary of his message. We pray that this summary would work its way deep into our hearts, that we would be ready at the drop of a hat to announce the presence of your anointed one within history as one who could suffer, die, rise again, and thereby proclaim light to Jew and Gentile alike. Let us see Christ as the great king who's risen from the dead the great prophet who proclaims light, and the great priest who suffered as a sacrifice in our place. Father, fill us with joy and hope as we look at this pure essence of gospel distilled down into a single verse by your mighty apostle. We pray that you would free us from distraction, that you would open our hearts to worship, our minds to understand, our wills to submit and assent, to the glories of your Son, and that we would turn to him in love and adoration. Be with my mouth, help me to speak boldly and accurately concerning your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Luke has shown us the certainty of the kingdom from the beginnings with 120 disciples in the upper room waiting for Pentecost right after the ascension, all the way here where Paul has been sitting in a Roman jail cell in Caesarea for two years waiting for a chance for somebody to pay some attention to his case and move the judicial process along. But though Paul has been sitting and waiting, the word of God is not bound. And in fact, through a variety of circumstances that Luke documents at length in chapter 25, Paul ends up proclaiming the gospel before a governor and a king simultaneously. And he ends that speech on a truly climactic note as he summarizes his message sort of one final time. This is the last major speech in Acts. Uh, Luke gives us one more glimpse of what Paul taught simply in his interaction with the Jewish people at Rome in chapter 28 but not a full-blown gospel proclamation such as Paul makes before, especially King Agrippa, but also Festus, the governor. So Paul is proclaiming the gospel, and he brings his proclamation, his sermon, to an end on this note, which I think we have every reason to regard as the literary climax of the book of Acts. After this, we're just wrapping up the action. We know that the kingdom is certain, From here on, yes, we've got the exciting, dangerous shipwreck in the next chapter. And then following that, 
we have Paul arriving in Rome. Luke is tying up a few loose ends with those two narratives. His main point is for us to know that Jesus reigns, which he drives home in Paul's rhetorical point here. So, as a summary of the gospel, what what does Paul proclaim? First, he proclaims the precondition of the gospel, that the Christ would suffer, uh, should suffer, there are different translations, but the basic idea in the Greek word is that the Christ was able to suffer. He starts with the possibility of suffering for God's anointed. Now, when you think God's anointed, the one who will save the world, you typically, especially if you're right, a first century Jewish man, are not going to think of suffering. You're going to think of triumph, winning, victory, conquering the enemies of God, and driving them out of the promised land. Paul did not proclaim victory first. He proclaimed suffering first. That the Christ could suffer and did suffer. Christ had to suffer. Luke says back in Luke 24, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer and enter into his glory? So this is a possibility. It's an actuality. And in fact, it is a necessity in this in this part of the verse then lies the proclamation of christ as priest the one who suffered as a sacrifice also lies the proclamation of our own guilt why did god's anointed have to suffer in order to reign not because reigning is predicated on suffering god reigns eternally and he didn't suffer but rather because we sin and our sin deserved punishment and that is why God's anointed suffered. He didn't suffer on his own behalf. He suffered on our account. Took the penalty our sins deserved. And Paul proclaimed that, that the Christ would suffer. Jesus is priest. Jesus suffered in our place. So the proclamation that Christ must suffer is where Paul starts this brief summary of the gospel. The thing that he proclaimed, the thing that the prophets and Moses proclaimed, is the thing that we proclaim, that we believe, and that we share when we have the opportunity. Jesus had to suffer. And not only did he suffer, but he also rose from the dead. In other words, his suffering was not the everyday suffering that we experience by virtue of life in a fallen world. He got paper cuts He got colds. No, it's worse than that. He suffered to the point of death. That is the content of the gospel that Paul proclaimed. God's anointed one, his Messiah, suffered to the point of death. But that is so radically incomplete if you stop there as to be almost totally incorrect. The message is not merely that God's anointed suffered and suffered to the point of death, but also that he rose from the dead. The statement that he rose from the dead, though, makes no sense without the prior statement that he died. We rightly judge the Jesuit missionary, Matteo Ricci, in the court of the emperor of China in the 16th century, who taught what he considered to be Christian doctrine for over a decade in that context, 
and never got around to mentioning the death of Christ. The Chinese are not ready, he said. We can't proclaim the death of Christ. That would put them off the message. We'll start with the moral precepts of Christianity, the part that they can understand, that they can appreciate, that they can incorporate into their worldview. And whatever else we can say about Matteo Ricci's learning and piety and so on, his understanding of the gospel is radically deficient if he thinks you can teach it for 10 years without mentioning that Jesus suffered and died. Paul proclaimed this everywhere, that the Christ would suffer and that he would suffer to the point of death. That is what's necessary. That understanding is necessary before you can even get to the idea that he rose from the dead. A Messiah who neither died nor rose doesn't address the core problem of the human race, which is death. Whatever our achievements, whatever our status, they all crumble into nothingness in the face of the fact that our lives will find a terminus. And that whatever we've done, whatever we cared about, will no longer be known, remembered, cared about. Jesus conquered death, and therefore he is king. The one who can beat death is the one who is worthy to rule the human race. The one who can deal with our greatest problem is the one who is naturally the one to lead us. And that is Jesus. Paul proclaimed that wherever he went, that God's anointed one rose from the dead. Not only did he rise from the dead, Paul brings this out almost kind of incidentally, even though he has not mentioned it all that often. Not just that the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead, but that the Christ would be the first to rise from the dead. It's almost like Luke has saved this for the climax, the notion that not only does Jesus rise in a glorified, perfected state, but that there's millions and millions more to come. Jesus is just the first fruits. The rest of those in him, all Christians, will also rise from the dead. Christ is merely the first in a countless multitude that no man can number from every tribe, people, language, tongue, and nation of those who served him in life, who died, and then will rise again in a bodily way to live with God in heaven forever. Paul proclaims that wherever he goes, and he says the prophets taught this, Moses taught this, this is pure Old Testament doctrine, that God's anointed one suffers and that those who are united by faith to him, those who are in Christ, as Paul says it so often in his letters, will follow him in rising from the dead. So when Paul calls him the first to rise from the dead, is Paul denying that Lazarus rose, that the widow of Nain's son rose, that the man thrown into Elisha's grave rose, that the other, the Shunammite woman's son rose when Elijah raised him from the dead? No, he's not denying that. He's not saying those weren't resurrections. He's saying those were resurrections back into this sin-ridden existence that is living, yes, but also dying. Lazarus died again. So did those other three men. 
They were not resurrected finally and fully to a glorified state in which death could no longer touch them. Jesus did not rise from the dead in order at the age of 33 in order to live out his days and die and go quietly into the tomb as an 85-year-old. That is not the New Testament message. That happened to Lazarus. That happened to the son of the widow of Nain. That happened to the man thrown into Elisha's tomb and the boy whom Elijah raised. They lived out their life and they died. Not so with Jesus Christ. As the first to rise from the dead, he is permanently glorified. He is lit from within by the light of heaven itself. Or we should say, he is the light of heaven and he let that light shine through. Never more to suffer, never more to die, as the hymn says. Christ is the first to rise from the dead and the glorified body that he enjoys will also be ours. The glorified state that he enjoys will be ours. So again, why should we fear death? Why should we say, this life is all there is? We shouldn't. This life is not all there is. Death is our entrance into glory because resurrection lies on the other side of it. Paul proclaimed that everywhere he went. That is why he was able to sit in a Roman prison for two years and instead of saying, let me out, let me out, let me out. He was able to stand before Agrippa and say, I proclaim Jesus. And I'm going to proclaim Jesus right here, right now. I'm not even going to mention that I would like to get out of prison. You know that already, and you're not going to let me out. So there's no point in saying that. Let's talk about something that matters, which is that Jesus is alive. And not only is Jesus alive, but everyone who is united to him by faith will live again. Paul proclaimed that everywhere. Proclaiming, in other words, that in Jesus has begun the reversal of the curse the elimination of death, the whole cosmos is being brought back under the Father's control through the conquering work of the Son. The curse is rolled back, death, suffering, mortality, rolled back by the resurrection power of the Son of God. Christ was able to suffer. He was able to feel pain and die. But he was also able to conquer that pain and to conquer that death, not just for himself, but for the cosmos at large, and especially for those in him. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, believe in Jesus, rise from the dead, overcome death, be with Christ, be united to him by faith in his work as priest of suffering, in his work as king of conquering death. And in his work as prophet of proclaiming the gospel. Luke has portrayed all of his characters as prophets along the line of Old Testament prophets, people who proclaim the word of God. But now he tells us the ultimate prophet is Jesus. He would proclaim light. Jesus is a preacher. A preacher of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Now, isn't that interesting? Paul mirrors the language that Jesus used in addressing him just a few verses before. 
I will deliver you from your people and the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes, turn them from darkness to light. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul preaches to Jew and Gentile alike. Now Paul says, the circle is closed. Actually, Jesus preaches to Jew and Gentile alike. Jesus is the great proclaimer to Jew and Gentile alike. Paul proclaims, Christ proclaims. Paul proclaims because Christ proclaims. Paul says, I'm an apostle, I'm a preacher, that's my vocation. But my vocation is derivative, and it comes from the original vocation of the Son of God as the one who proclaims light. God's anointed, God's Christ, is not just the ultimate priest who suffers, the ultimate king who conquers death, but the ultimate prophet who proclaims. So Paul proclaims that Jesus is the ultimate proclaimer. Which is exactly what he said in 2 Corinthians. We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. That's what Paul was about. Jesus is prophet who preaches what? Light. God's anointed one proclaims light. Isn't that interesting that Paul is able to boil the gospel message down to a single word? Jesus Christ proclaims light. Would you be able to say that? Do you know enough to convincingly back that up? If someone says to you, if you're trying to witness to an unbeliever and you say, Jesus proclaims light, and they say, what do you mean? What light does Jesus offer that Google does not? What light does Jesus offer that a research library does not? Are we just talking knowledge? Are we talking some other analog to physical light? Paul is saying, yes, we are talking something more than knowledge. We are talking about not just an intellectual light whereby we understand and know. We're also talking about a moral light whereby our sin is exposed and cleansed. God is light. Jesus proclaims light. In other words, Christ proclaims the good news that God is driving back darkness. So this is not just a moral light, not just an intellectual light. It's also, you would really have to call it almost a political light. A good news about a kingdom that is more powerful than Satan's kingdom, that is destroying the darkness that swathes the world. That is the light of Jesus Christ. He is perfectly righteous, right? morally speaking. He's perfectly good. He doesn't have a dark side. He doesn't have the capacity to join the dark side, to go dark, or any of our other expressions for evil. His radiance is absolute. There are spots on the surface of the sun, dark spots. There are no dark spots anywhere in Christ. He is perfectly bright everywhere. There is not one little tiny particle of sin, wrongdoing, or evil anywhere inside him, nor any capacity for such. The prince of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. No darkness at all. Though you and I know what that internal moral darkness feels like, 
God does not. It's what Jesus meant to say, the prince of the world has nothing in me. There's no point of contact for Satan within the heart of Jesus Christ. Nothing about evil appeals to him. So he is morally light. He is intellectually light. The light that enlightens every man who comes into the world. Darkness as a metaphor for ignorance, for lack of knowledge. Jesus is the solution to that darkness. He is the light of the world in that intellectual sense. Not just the sense that people who know Jesus are curious in a way that people who don't know him are not, but also in the even deeper sense that without Christ as the Logos, the organizing principle of reality, knowledge becomes impossible. If the world is truly chaos, one can't know anything. It's reflected in Heraclitus. You can never step in the same river twice. Things are always changing. Everything is in flux. The knowledge that's true today may no longer be true tomorrow. But because Christ is the Logos who enlightens every man who comes into the world, we have that intellectual knowledge. It's easy to point out historically that the modern research university was founded in a Christian context and still endures primarily only in a Christian context. Knowledge, intellectual light, is only possible through Jesus Christ as creator and as redeemer. So there's that intellectual light. There's the moral light of Jesus. Paul proclaimed both of those. We tend to shrink from the moral light. We like the low light in restaurants. We all look better in the dark. Direct sunlight in the New Mexico desert on a July afternoon doesn't do any favors for anyone's laugh lines or crow's feet or wrinkles. If that's true physically, how much more true is it morally? But the political light is related to the moral light. Morally, Jesus exposes our sin by shining the light of the world on us. That's exactly what happened to Festus, right? who interrupts, your great learning is driving you mad in the next verse. Festus is not interested in light. He likes the darkness. He doesn't want to hear any more about light. But the moral sense and the political sense are related. That is, insofar as Christ is rolling back the kingdom of darkness, he's doing it not just by taking it out of Satan's hide, taking it out of Satan's territory, driving back the devil and his works, but he is also conquering us and our hearts and removing that darkness from within us. He is the king who conquers not just territory, but who conquers the hearts of his subjects. We are his because he rules our hearts. This is the truth in so many doctrines, especially what we call uh, irresistible grace. Christ as king, when he says, I will conquer Satan, I will capture you from Satan, I will take you as my own. You can't say, no you won't. You're a conquering king. You can conquer the prince of darkness, but you can't conquer me. 
not how that works. The political aspect of this light of the world that Jesus is drives out the darkness in his subjects' hearts. Now that is not apart from our will or without our will. That is within our will. Jesus rules even the human personality and the human will. He is at work within us, not violating our will, but working with our will to make us willing, as Psalm 110 says, your people shall be willing in the day of your power. Willing to obey him. Willing to let his light shine in every corner of our hearts. Willing to join him in his crusade against Satan and the works of darkness and the curse. That is what Jesus proclaims. He proclaims light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. The gospel is universal. Right In Paul's mind, there's two groups of people in the world. His own and everyone else. Jew and Gentile. Jew and non-Jew. And Paul mentions them all the time, especially in Romans. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. That was who he was aware of. He didn't feel the need to have all the ethnicity boxes on the census form. Are you Asian American or Pacific Islander? To the Jew first, and also to the Asian American and Pacific Islander. He doesn't break down humanity any further, but in those two groups, Jew and Gentile, that includes every human person. And Christ, as prophet, speaks to us all. He proclaims light. The light that drives back the kingdom of darkness, the light that drives out the darkness in our own hearts, the light that enlightens our minds so we can understand, so we can seek knowledge, so we can learn map our cosmos and our place in it. That is what Jesus does. Paul proclaimed that in synagogue after synagogue, in Gentile city after Gentile city. He proclaims it now to a Jew, Agrippa, and a Roman, Festus. Right? This message is for both of you, both governor and king, both Jew and Roman. Doesn't matter. Jesus is light for you both. In other words, Festus, this is not just some Jewish thing that you can safely ignore. Nor can he say to Agrippa, this is just some Gentile thing that we Jews can safely ignore. This message that God is light, that Jesus is light, that Jesus as the suffering Messiah who proclaims light is for everyone, Jew and Gentile. So seek the light. Know the gospel. That's maybe the most important application of this verse. Be able to say with Paul what Moses and the prophets said. That the Christ would suffer. That the Christ would be the first to rise from the dead. That the Christ would proclaim light to Jew and Gentile. If you know that, if you can memorize this verse, you have the gospel resources that you need to perform the steps in evangelism that we talked about two weeks ago. Right? The task is to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. That message that Jesus is light speaks to all of those. Once their eyes are open, proclaim light to them. Once they want the light, proclaim to them the political side of that, how it's driving back the kingdom of darkness, of which they were a happy citizen until quite recently. And then show them the forgiveness of sins 
and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. All of this comes through God's anointed who suffered, rose from the dead as the first fruits, and now proclaims light. Let's pray. Father, help us to know your gospel. Help us to be ready to share it with others and to preach it to ourselves. Give us the grace to be able to speak to Jew and to Gentile, to have the understanding of Jesus as the light of the world in his moral dimensions, in his intellectual dimensions, in his political dimensions. Father, help us to know him in his offices as prophet to teach us, king to rule us, priest to die for us, and help us to be ready again to share that wherever, whenever, however you give us opportunity. We thank you that the Christ had to suffer. We thank you that he rose from the dead, not for just for himself, but as a public person, as the head of his church, as the one who would lead all of us into that same glorious, permanent resurrection. Father, help us to be able to proclaim light because we are Christians, we are little Christs, and we follow the great proclaimer of light. We pray these things in his name. Amen.